The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Welcome to another episode of Data Gurus. This is Seema Vasu, your host. And today I have Rob Volpe joining me. He is the CEO of Ignite360, which is an insights and strategy consultancy. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Seema. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's such a pleasure to have you here. I am in awe of what you've accomplished thus far. It's always been my passion to one day write a book. And I want to talk about that. But before we get there... Just for our listeners, I would love to have you just describe a little bit about your path thus far in your career. How did you get here? I went to Syracuse, started out of college and wanted to be, I wanted to be a network television programming executive. Okay. That was the person that decided like, what time is Blackish going to be on and what time is Modern Family and how all of that worked. I was really intrigued by that. And that was actually partly, as I reflect on it now, linked back to my interest in human behavior and Mm. and being able to understand like, when is something going to really resonate with the most people? How can you position and create a a TV schedule that is going to reach the most eyeballs and and get America talking? You don't just fall into that job. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to LA and I'm going to get a job. I could type. I was good on the phone. Got a job as a legal secretary. Did that for a while. I applied for a job at Fox in a research position, actually, crunching Nielsen data, Mm -hmm. you know, numbers and whatnot. Didn't get the job. I was number two, and they told me that, which is kind of, you know, one of those moments of like, how am I supposed to feel about this? Yeah. 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 But they really liked me. They brought me in as another legal secretary. Over the years, I realized though, I was intellectual, I moved into business affairs and I realized I was intellectually curious mm-hmm. about what I was doing, but I wasn't passionate. But what I was getting passionate about was like looking at marketing campaigns for movies. Okay. And that finally gave me a clue of like, hmm, maybe there's something I should go explore this. And so started to get into marketing. I took a class at UCLA Extension. I started networking and talking to people and they all told me to leave Hollywood. They were like, go get the block and tackle experience at a CPG or something like that. You can always come back to Hollywood, but if you grow up in marketing in Hollywood, you can't leave. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Which was really fascinating. And Mm -hmm. so I left and I never really came back except for some clients here and there. And so I got into marketing and, you know, this is back in like 1995 and marketing at the time, I didn't even understand that marketing research existed as mm-hmm. a field. So to me, in my head, it was advertising PR and marketing communications. I was like, okay, I'm going to go get a job in one of those things. And I landed at a PR firm and I started doing uh, PR and then actually event marketing. We were working with Starbucks and they had a joint venture with what's now Nestle ice cream dryers and Edie's and they were doing Starbucks ice cream. And I got to travel the country and scoop ice cream on the weekends, which was amazing. Amazing. I mean, for somebody that loves to travel, like it was incredible. 
And it had the added benefit that I was interacting with people. I was giving them samples of ice cream and I was paying attention to how they were responding to it. So that was my first clue that, oh, research. And I remember the clients had come back from an event and I'd write up a report and I would include responses from like, oh, here's what I was noticing. Here was the feedback. And one of the clients actually said one time on the phone, she's like, oh, this is like, we're getting marketing research as well as the PR and promotion. But I wasn't paying attention to what the universe was putting in front of me at that point. Keep going through my career. I worked agency. I worked at Kraft Foods. I was large company, small agency. I was out on my own for a while with one partner. And then finally, while I was working at Kraft, I had another moment. I was always the one that would show up at the focus groups. I was in promotional marketing. So consumer promotions is how it was referred to at Kraft at the time. So coupons and partnerships and all of that. But when there were focus groups, I'd be the first one there and I'd stay through the bitter end. Yep. You know, I wasn't yep. leaving for meetings or doing, I was so, because to me, it was such a gift to it's hear from valuable. consumer. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. Still had no idea that that's what I should be, you know, <laughs> doing, but yeah. And then the team, when we were doing some ethnographies for Maxwell House Instant Coffee, which was a brand and product I was working on. And we were doing ethnos with women from Caribbean or countries of origin. They were living in Manhattan or in New York City. And I got to go in on the couple of the in-homes because the marketing team wasn't signing up for it. And I was like, yeah, of course I want to go. And it was so incredible. Even though the sessions were in Spanish, which I did not speak, the moderator would translate a little bit for okay. me, but I picked up so much yeah. just from being there and the, the body language and the gestures and all the things on the walls and, and whatnot. So again, this is something you should be doing. Finally, moved to San Francisco, working at a toy company, get laid off. And then I'm connected at that point with some of the other kid marketing research firms. And I start doing consulting work for them. And one fateful day, Wynn Tyree, who's the owner of Smarty Pants, yeah, she and her husband, Rodamas, are in San Francisco. My husband, Charles, the four of us have dinner. And Wynn says to me while we're waiting outside the restaurant for a table, I'm hiring, I'm looking to hire somebody just like you that's got the strategic chops and can write PowerPoints, but that can also moderate. And we played the name game and Mm -hmm. didn't come up with anybody that was suitable for what her needs were never popped into my head at that point. Like, oh, maybe I should go for something (laughs) like that. She didn't even mention it. And then three days later, I'm doing the backstroke. I'm a swimmer. And I was doing the backstroke at an outdoor pool that I love here. And all of a sudden it hit me. I was like, wait a minute. I like talking to people. I'm (laughs) good with the other stuff. Maybe I should be doing this. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, And that's, so that's where it went. I called a friend who was in the industry, had her own firm. And she was like, oh, go to Riva, get trained. And when Mm -hmm. you're done with that, let me know if I can put you to work, I will. So six weeks later, I was at Riva training. A month after that, I was standing in a Walmart in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the frozen vegetable aisle, waiting to see if somebody would pick up a test product for General Mills for Green Giant. And that's how my insights career got started. And I worked with my friend for a few years and helped grow her firm. And then I ended up going out on my own and starting Ignite 360 in January, 2011. And 11 years later, here I we are. love that story. And it's so funny when you look back and you can see the clues that were dropped. And it really is just a matter of being open and ready to kind of look at that and say, okay, it's time. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. The universe puts 
the signals in front of you, whether they're the things you need to clear or the clues on the path that you need to go on. And if you ignore it, it's just the universe is going to put it back in front of you again (laughs) until you finally get a clue. And, you know, so it took me a few years, but I finally got there. Congratulations. So let's talk about, you know, again, this book and what were the clues that gave that you saw in the universe that said, hey, it's time for me to write this book. Yeah. Well, okay. So empathy has always been my superpower. And it was a survival skill I write about in the book. It became a survival skill when I was growing up in Indiana. I was teased and bullied for being other, even though I didn't understand what the other was at that point. And I was using empathy in order to navigate and survive through grade school, junior Mm -hmm. high, high school, not unlike many other people. Then jump ahead to 2010 and the study comes out of the University of Michigan. It's the, the study of studies finding that university students starting in 2001 had 40% less empathy than students in from 1979 through the eighties and nineties. And I remember watching that news story, it made CNN. And I remember standing there seeing it. I was in an airport and it's like, Oh my God, this is really bad. Cause in 2001, it's now 2010. That means if you were 20, then you're 30 now you're a parent, you're working, you're doing all these things and you don't have as much empathy. We're in trouble. The society is in trouble. And I'm looking around me and like, did anyone else feel this, see this? And now people are racing for their flights or having a drink at the bar. And I was, it was, I refer to it as like a Cassandra moment. Like, no, this, but no one else is getting it. And so But I recognized that empathy was something that, you know, that's what we do as researchers, Mm -hmm. as qualitative researchers, especially. And so as I started Ignite 360 a year later, we really continued to play up the importance of the empathetic connection and making sure that our clients were really connecting and getting who their Mm -hmm. consumers were. And through those efforts, we were finding, well, gee, there's a lot of barriers that are getting in their way. There's a lot of judgment. They're not listening. They're not integrating. You know, they can't make sense of it. How do you help them overcome that? And so that's where we started to identify the five steps to mm-hmm. empathy. And so that's where that came. We train that now, we coach that, we bring it into all of our work. For me, as it relates to the book, though, you know, as a CEO, I remember in the early days of the company, people telling me, like, oh, you're a CEO, you need to go write a book now. Yeah. <laughs> and my reaction was like, in what free time? Like, right, exactly. Like, do that? Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> You know, as you're feeling the crushing weight of starting it's a company. daunting. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. absolutely is. And so I didn't do too much with it. I went down one path for about a year. I was really, I'm intrigued with intuition and our amazing ability to ignore our intuition. And I feel like in the workplace, especially if we would just, you know, it's not that you can't let go of the numbers, but if you could tie in your gut to Mm -hmm. it as well, I think you have a much more successful outcomes in your work situations. But, you know, I have a good friend who is a marketer. And when I talked to her about intuition, she was just like, oh, (laughs) you know, like like there was, it was like her gut was cut off from the rest from her head. Well, because Um, I think every business case you have to make and every justification you have to make has to be, you know, data. Again, I'm not, doubting data, but data is in the forefront, right? In terms of being able to position a decision or a recommendation that you might want to make. 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so, and I, so I get it. And we've been trained this way and that's yeah. how, you know, society has, has been working and B schools have been working for yes. years, but it's like, okay, well, maybe we could bring awareness to it. Problem was I wasn't finding myself really passionate about what we were doing and about those interviews that I was doing. It wasn't motivating me to spend my time, my precious free time writing. Mm-hmm. And then in 2016, I was speaking with, I was doing a presentation to some university students here in San Francisco. And I remember, you know, so I talk about insights and strategy. I talk about the work that we do, get them excited. And then I talk about empathy because I knew from 2010, like I got to help these kids like reconnect and be aware of empathy. And so in those early presentations, you know, the five steps were just forming, but I was telling stories from Mm -hmm. my in-homes and some of the stories that are in the book, notably Frank, which is, I forget the the title of the chapter is mother would never do that, which was about a time when I went in with a ton of judgment Judgment. and it totally threw how I behaved. And Mm -hmm. and like, I didn't even hear anything from that interview because I was so fixated Mm -hmm. on uncovering what I thought was his, his truth that he was denying telling me. And right. Yeah. So I tell that story. I tell the story. I often tell the story of Iris who appears in the chapter, the birth of Venus. And she was 25 minutes late to our in-home interview in her house. And she answers the door dripping wet, wrapped in a towel. (laughs) And you're just like, (laughs) what the heck's been going on? And the students, as I was telling those stories, the students were just hanging on my every word. Like you could just tell they were a rapt audience. They mm-hmm. were they were paying attention. This message was getting through to them. And a voice inside my head just said, this is what you need to write about. These mm. are the stories you need to tell. And it was like, aha. So that's when I got started writing the book and using the stories to help people understand empathy. I will say the first draft and what is the finished book look nothing, nothing the same. Nothing yeah. the same. And I say that because I find I've been talking to a lot of people that do want to write a book right. at some point. And I think there's a barrier that people have that, you know, oh, the first words have to be perfect and have mm-hmm. to be the finished thing. No, the introduction was one of the last things that I wrote during the editing process last year before we, we locked the manuscript down. You just have to start. You have to just start. Yeah. It's like walking, taking one step, putting one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other. A great analogy. And you're going to stumble and you're going, the literary equivalent of that is you throw that chapter out or those paragraphs out and you get up and you keep going. And I love the title of the book. It says, tell me more about that. Solving the empathy crisis, one conversation at a time. I love how you kind of tied your profession, right? Tell me more understanding back to that original pain point that you wanted to solve, which was the lack of empathy in our society. So it ties together really nicely. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I recognized that empathy was a very broad topic that it had application mm-hmm. personally and professionally. It's not, you know, something that you just leave at the office or you right. leave at home. And so I didn't want to write a book that was just focused on the professional or just mm-hmm. focused as a self-help book. I was trying to straddle, you know, both worlds and help people understand more about empathy so that then they could bring it in wherever they needed it. Right. Um, Some people need it more in their personal life. Other people need to tap into it professionally, may do quite well with it personally, Mm -hmm. but when they get to work, they become an automaton and they need (laughs) to like, you know, humanize themselves. And empathy is the way to do 
that. So I had a, I wanted to just share with the listeners a couple of interesting terms that you used in your book that I think would be helpful to clarify. One of was cognitive empathy. The other one was emotional empathy. And then you put in sympathy. And I think those distinctions between all three are important to understand. If you don't mind just taking a few minutes to kind of talk through those differences. It, yeah, it, absolutely. Really illuminating. And there's so many myths. I spend a lot of time when I'm speaking or doing readings from the book, I spend time demystifying empathy because there yeah. is a lot of confusion. I often refer to it as the E word that people are afraid of, like mm. emotion. Right. Because when you ask people, give me a definition of empathy, you end up hearing at least two answers. One is feeling the feelings of somebody else. The other is seeing somebody's point of view. And then mm-hmm. you often hear walking a mile in someone else's shoes. But just the feeling, the feelings and seeing the point of view, those are two very different things. One is cognitive and yes. one is emotional. And so neuroscientists, Helen Reese is one of them out of Harvard. And there's another guy in Stanford whose name I'm blanking on right now. They've done a lot of work among other neuroscientists and have found the parts of the brain that light up when the different types of empathy are actually being deployed. So what that's indicating is we're born with the ability to have empathy and that there are distinct types. I think there was a injustice done when empathy was being named, whenever that was, Right. it all just got lumped in together. And then you have sympathy. Right. And so sympathy is just this whole other thing. So sympathy, the analogy that I like to use and somebody else coined this, but the difference between sympathy and empathy is the difference between a three-letter and a four-letter word. Mm-hmm. Sympathy is about having a feeling for someone where emotional empathy or empathy itself is with somebody. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. with empathy, you're on a level playing field, but with sympathy, there can be a power dynamic that mm-hmm. gets created. And Brene Brown has a really great animated video about the differences and the power dynamic with sympathy and how it, it you need sympathy in our society, yeah. but it's so often links into judgment or pity. A pity. Or, or, yeah. Yeah. And it creates a power dynamic. Mm-hmm. Empathy. So then back into empathy, you've got cognitive and emotional empathy. And the way I, I like to talk about those, emotional empathy is what we use with the people that lived in the cave with us, if we were back in prehistoric times, it's our immediate family, it's our tribe, it's our closest friends, the ones that we just know so well that we have such similar rituals and beliefs and behaviors that we get who they are. And it's Mm -hmm. easier to connect on an emotional level with them. And then you've got the people that live in the cave down the road that you never see, and they come (laughs) over (laughs) or stand outside. (laughs) And they've got different rituals and beliefs and behaviors. And you've got to figure out like, okay, how are we going to, you know, farm this big field in front of us Mm -hmm. all together and and work together? How are we going to collaborate? How are we going to communicate? How are we going to make decisions? How are we going to ideate problem solutions? Cognitive empathy is critical in all of that. It's seeing the point of view of somebody else. I may not be able to feel what they're feeling in that other cave, but I can imagine what it's like to be them. Got it. Okay. It's actually one of the steps, I think, in the empathy. Is it the, let's say, integrate the understanding? Is it a little bit like that? Yes. The fourth step is integrate into understanding. And that is about 
making room in your head that there are mm-hmm. other ways to do things. So right. yeah, I'm living in cave A and over in cave <laughs> B, they do something different. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It right. just means it's different. Similarly, you know, the analogy I use in the book and, and like to talk about, it's like, I like chocolate ice cream. Mm-hmm. Other people like vanilla doesn't mean, well, they might be wrong if I'm being yeah. judgmental, but <laughs> it doesn't mean that they're wrong. It's about yeah. being curious to understand, well, what is it about vanilla that you like so much? Right. And tell me about that so that I can have not only a better appreciation of that flavor, but I can turn to them and maybe come up with, if I'm a a brand manager or I'm an insights person or I'm ideating Mm -hmm. and I need to come up with some new flavors, you know, and I need to come up with a vanilla something, I might need to know that it's about the floral notes that they really like, the sort of soothing creaminess that you get with a vanilla flavor that chocolate doesn't necessarily provide or or whatever the the answer might be. That's all cognitive empathy. Mm -hmm. And that's integrating into your understanding, making room in your head that there's another way of thinking about something and being open to that and making sense of it. And yeah, and cognitive empathy is the thing that we need in our day-to-day life, Mm -hmm. whether we're interacting with a neighbor, a store clerk, a colleague, a boss, a stakeholder, whoever it might be. It's all about cognitive empathy. Do you think you need two parties to have cognitive empathy? I think you can get further if both people have cognitive empathy and can get there, but you can still you can then use, if that's not the case, you can still use empathy to your advantage. Yes. Yes. um, Okay. By being empathetic, you know, another myth around empathy or misconception is that if I have empathy with somebody else, I'm giving up my own belief system. Mm -hmm. Again, if I, you know, suddenly have empathy with the fact that you like vanilla, that means I've got to give up chocolate. That's That's not the case case at all, but you can use empathy, whether the other person is having empathy with you or not, You can use empathy in the ways that you communicate with somebody in the way that you may try to persuade them to do something, you know, collaborate, ideate Mm -hmm. with them, you know, and hopefully they're, you're going to come in together in the middle, but Mm -hmm. you can at least use it to your own advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why leadership, you know, you hear so much about great leaders having empathy, right. And being able to understand cognitively, at least what the other person might be thinking or doing to be able to expand their view of thinking. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I love the fact that you've come up with a framework and that it really was born out of the fact that you were trying to help your clients be able to distill the research that you were doing and kind of be open to it and gain more value from what they were hearing. So let's just walk through the steps of what you coach clients and what you recommend in your book for people to go through. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, the first step is dismantle your judgment. Personally, I think that's the hardest. So hard. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's the hardest, although (laughs) we've got some data from some work we did in January that shows that it's actually kind of all over the place. Really? Yeah, there are some variables, you know, age, education, Mm. gender that kind of throw you in different places. But what I've found anecdotally through our work is judgment. If you're an educated executive working at any major company. Yeah. And I think it's just because of the hard wiring that Mm -hmm. education puts into you, you become judgmental and you become like my way is the right way. I know the answer. 
and it's not about making a judgment. You still need to do that. So judgment right. has there are two things in judgment. There's making a judgment and there's being judgmental. Right. Yes. Being judgmental, casting aspersion on someone. That's what we want to get rid of. Yeah. And he, just drawing attention to it and bringing awareness mm-hmm. to people that, oh, you might be judgmental in this moment can bring about significant change. There was one story shortly after we had introduced the five steps and we were training clients on it before we went in field. We were doing a study looking at C-store shoppers, convenience store. Right. And we were in the Philadelphia area. So it's all about Wawa and sheets. Mm -hmm. And as we were going out doing in-homes, one of the respondents was telling us about how his, I think it was his brother-in-law would go to a Wawa and get a pizza and bring it home for the family. But he would also get a second pizza that he would eat in the car for the 20 minute drive home. (laughs) And then the whole family would eat the pizza. And it was like, <laughs> what? Um, everybody listening to this is having that same reaction. Like, oh my God, they bought mm-hmm. one pizza for the family and another that he ate in the car. You know, and you start to think about what does this man look like? Yes, and, yes. And who, what sort of lifestyle is he leading? That's all judgment that's yeah. coming up. And if you're letting that judgment get in the way, you're not hearing the rest of the explanation or seeing the possibilities that, oh, maybe there's an unmet need that, mm-hmm. you know, if we were to offer a product to Wawa, that's like bite-sized pizza or yes. they should sell pizza by yeah. the slice. So the man doesn't have to consume the whole pizza on the way home. Cause once you start with a pizza, you can't really stop. <laughs> we came out of that interview and one of the marketers turned to me as we got into the car to go off to our next session. And he said, wow, I was really having judgment mm-hmm. around the whole pizza thing. And then I realized I was having judgment and I was able to dismantle it and put that aside. And I heard all these amazing, you know, that's great rattling off all these insights that he got out of it. So yeah, dismantling judgment is step number one. It's the, I think the first and the gnarliest step for most people. The second step is asking good questions Mm -hmm. and it's asking, you know, broad, open, exploratory question. There's place for close-ended questions, but you really want to be open because you don't know where somebody's going to take you in their answer. And, And so you want to be prepared for that by giving them an open question Mm -hmm. and how to probe and follow up, you know, tell me more about that is a great probe. And I learned that from my Reva training from Naomi Henderson, you know, so step two is asking good questions. Step three is active listening. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not just with your ears, you obviously have to be hearing what they're saying, but you're also looking for the nonverbal cues. Mm -hmm. You're looking for, you know, what's going on in their environment, other things, the tells that you might get to indicate to you, there's, you know, either a, it's verifying and validating what you're hearing, things are lining up or "Mm, there's more to the story. I Mm -hmm. need to kind of dig in here. So that's active listening. And it's it's active listening is actually also using your intuition. So, So the stories in that chapter include times where my intuition was telling mm-hmm. me like, there's a lot more there's here. Something I here. Need to, yeah. yeah. I got to go do this. Yeah. And there are other times when there's one chapter called mirror mirror, where I was on an in-home and we had been in the respondent's bathroom as part of a tour of the home. And then during a bio break, and I had two female clients with me, a female videographer, they all go to the bathroom, (laughs) come back and there's nothing. And then I go into the bathroom and because I'm a man and facing a different way while I'm doing the business and paying attention to what's going on, actively listening, 
I noticed that she has a, what I call a penis mirror hanging above her toilet. It is a mirror in the shape of an erect male penis. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Framed in stained glass. And you're just like, hello. And how did we (laughs) miss that earlier? Yeah. And I go back out and I ask her about it. And it's one of the most empowering responses I've ever heard from a respondent. And she remains near and dear to my heart to this day. That's amazing. That's about active listening. That chapter is called Mirror, Mirror. Yeah. Appropriately enough. Uh, Yeah, for sure. Um, (laughs) And then, yeah, step four is integrate into understanding. It's that making sense when things are different. The language that's in somebody else's home, you know, the syntax is a little different. You kind of connect to it, but you don't totally understand Mm -hmm. it. You've got to really work to integrate that and, and make sense of it. And then finally... Step five is using solution imagination. So that is that point where you're getting into empathy. When you're in the moment with somebody, you've done the other four steps, right. the judgment, the questions are coming, you're listening, you're integrating it, and you're able to then carry the conversation forward. And there's a great one of example of that. There's a, a chapter, we were up in Canada exploring what the immigrant experience mm-hmm. is like for recent Canadian immigrants. And there was a South Asian couple that I was interviewing and she was Hindi and worked at a Burger King because that was the only work. She she was a teacher back in in Mumbai, but those skills didn't translate. And so she had to start over. Her husband, who was a civil engineer, was brooming the factory floor. She was working at the Burger King and she talked about how she had to work in the back on the fry line. And I sat there and I was like, hmm, wait a minute you're Hindu Mm -hmm. and the cow is a sacred symbol in that religion. And there you are flame broiling your sacred symbol. What was that like? And so I asked her about it. Great question. Yeah. Because I was able to put myself into her shoes Mm -hmm. and imagine for myself, if I was challenged to do that, how hard would that be? And then, you know, ultimately it leads to those sacrifices that parents have to make. And it's at that point then that you're actually reaching, you know, at least cognitive empathy with other people. So, yeah. So those are the five steps and examples of how I just bring it all to life with my own stories and experiences um, through research. I, you know what? I love it. I love it that you're sharing it with the world. And I think it's, again, I said this before, it's like such a great framework for clients to understand how to use it and to really get more in depth and be more open to receiving the insights that are being collected. So thank you so much for sharing it with the world and with me today. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining me today. Really appreciate you taking the time and good luck with everything. I'm sure people are going to continue to want to learn more and know more about you as you embark on this journey. Well, you're kind of in the, you're already on the journey, but continue down the journey. Yeah. This is some people said to me after the book launch, they're like, wow, wow. I bet that feels great to have that done. And I'm like, the journey is really only beginning. Yes, the right. book was one part of it. Now we're into the next phase yes. of this journey. And But thank you. It's been amazing. And I appreciate Sima, you giving me the opportunity to, uh, to chat more about it. Of course. Teams are in flux, but you still have to get your research in field. Partnership with Paradigm Sample means you get our expert focus on every detail of your project. We have access to over 1 million consumers and many business professionals who are eager to voice their opinions and participate in traditional and non-traditional online studies, whether it comes to sampling, 
programming and hosting services or consultation, we are agile and quick to meet your needs. Visit ParadigmSample.com today. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. Exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.